Well, good morning. If you would uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, uh, that's where we'll camp out at least at the beginning this morning. While, while you're turning there, I'm supposed to, almost on pain of death, give you greetings from Thomas and Christy Slauson. I got to hang out with them in Sioux Falls for like three days, I think. It's the first time I'd ever been there intentionally. Um, so it was a really good time, and, and I think they're thriving and they're doing well, but I am supposed to communicate to you as much love as I possibly can. So um, there, there's that. All right, Luke. Uh, Luke, Luke, a compa- traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, And I witnessed to many of the things of which he writes about in the book of Acts, but certainly not what he writes about here, uh, through careful study and investigation, but also through the divine intervention, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this in verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, him being Jesus. And he, Jesus, said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Would you uh, pray with me? Uh, Father, we ask now, as we do every Sunday, that you would open your word up to us and, and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know how often you've read this uh, passage in the gospels, and, and you think to yourself, um, so that's what Jesus came up with, like bread and wine, and I, I, was it like ad hoc? Couldn't he have done something a little different? I mean, was he sitting there staring at his absent-minded disciples thinking, geez, I've just got a few moments left with them. I, I got to do something so they'll remember me. But what, what do I got? What, uh, nothing. Uh, okay, there's some bread. There's some wine. It'll have to do. Um, this is my body. Yeah, yeah. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, and, and of course, that's not the case. It was not ad hoc. In, in any sense. It, it, it was planned. And, and what we're going to be talking about here today is, is, is kind of a, a biblical theology of the Lord's Supper. Um, but, it, you know, what, what is it about food and memory? Food and memory. Uh, the, the two are tied closely together. I don't, you know, if you smell something, it brings back memories, right? If you eat something that you're smelling, it's, it's doubly so, I, you know, I don't know how many of you have great memories of Thanksgiving to where when you smell turkey, you automatically think of a family gathered around turkey or all the desserts that come with that. Um, I was born on George Washington's birthday. And, and so pretty much every year, ever since I was a kid, I got cherry chip cake for my birthday. And include, and always I would take cupcakes to school. That's back when you could do things like that. And, and they would be cherry with little hatchets in, paper hatchets in them. And, um, and, 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 and my wife has continued the tradition and knowing this full well, I don't even like cherry chip cake, right? But, but every time I see cherry chip cake, it's like, well, this must be my birthday, I guess. Um, I, I, I lived in rural Oregon where the school lunches were just brutal. And to this day, to this day, whenever I see slimy spinach slopped on a plate, I think, oh, my school lunch, Vail Elementary School, how dreadful. Stewed tomatoes would just, just be slimy. It, it was like government soup, surplus food. It was, it was terrible. Um, and 
I also had to, it was like that every single day. I had to walk uphill in the snow to school every day, both ways as well. But anyway, so, so those, the, the smells and the taste and all that just brings back vivid, vivid memories. And I'm sure it's like that for you too. Well, uh, God knows that food does this. I think he designed it for that purpose. Have you noticed whenever God wants us to remember something, whenever he wanted Israel to remember something, he, he says, I want you to remember so you should eat. Right, and and there's something inside of us that says, "Yeah, I really like that." I, the, the Lord is so kind. He didn't have to do it that way, but that's how He designed us. That's what food does. I think that's one of the reasons that He gave to the church the Lord's Supper. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a definition, and it is a clunky academic definition. I apologize for that. You can write it down if you want. I think there's a slide of it behind me, but I'm not going to look because I don't want to see how dreadful it looks on the screen. Um, But here we go. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, here's the definition. The Lord's Supper is a corporate memorial and celebration of the gospel given to the church by Jesus Christ, where the church recalls his death, Jesus's death, contemplates their constitution, that is, we contemplate our constitution as Jesus' new covenant people of God, and we anticipate his return to gather and to vindicate his people and to consummate his kingdom, okay? So that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Memorize that, memorize that. Um, so here's, here's another kind of definition of it that is more explanatory. The Lord's Supper is a visual olfactory, it means we, we smell it, right? Tactile, we, t- we touch it, and taste reminder, and depending on how old and stale the bread is, we can hear it crunch as well, right? Reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was designed that way. All five of our senses are employed in this. It should be, then, a holistic experience for us, combining sorrow and joy thanksgiving, anticipation, and deep love for Jesus. That's what we do every time we do the Lord's Supper. So this morning, maybe you're here, you're you're not a follower of Jesus yet. This sermon might seem a little strange to you. Frankly, if you're visiting the church for the very first time and you've never been to church before, this whole thing is going to seem really weird because we're going to talk about it like it's a meal and you'll see people walk forward and get little tiny cups smaller than Dixie cups and a little wafer of bread and they're going to act like it's really cool and neat and they'll call it a meal. And you go, that wouldn't fill up anybody. How, how is that a meal? Well, so that might seem strange to you. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about communion. It's what we call this. And we're going to dig into why we do this strange ritual every Sunday worship service. But this sermon is for you because it points, just like the Lord's Supper does, it points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I would like you to listen for that good news. Ask yourself, is it true that Jesus got up to the dead? Got it from the dead. We're going to be talking about every time we drink this, every time we eat this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns, until he returns. If Jesus actually did get up from the dead, then, then how should I respond? For the rest of us, you are Christians. I pray this morning that your understanding of the Lord's Supper would increase, so much so that your worship of Jesus is increased, your thankfulness to him increases, and your practice of the Lord's Supper becomes more meaningful. So let's, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. You've, you've seen that. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's what he said on that when, when he took the cup the cup of the new covenant. Now, now, why would he say something like that? What, what, what is drinking from a glass corporately? Have, what does that have to do with the covenant? Well, in order to understand that, this the Lord's Supper, we have to understand it in light of the old covenant, and especially the celebration of the meal of the old covenant, the Passover feast. Jesus gathers his disciples for the Passover feast. They, the Jewish people have been doing this for 1,400 years But Jesus does something a little bit different with it. It is not by accident 
Nor is it coincidence that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the eve of his death when he and his disciples celebrated the Passover. Again, Jesus was not just, well, here we are at the Passover and I'm, I'm heading for the cross. I've only got a few hours left. What do I do? No, he looked at his disciples and, he, and it was as if he could, was saying to them, we have been practicing this as a people for 1,400 years in anticipation of this night. This is why we've been doing it. And you few, you 12, you blessed, blessed 12, you get to be here for the start of what God has been doing from the very beginning. If that's the case, we need to go back, back in time, 1,400 years, to that very first Passover. And we can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. So I'm going to read that to you. And we will go from there. Exodus chapter 12, I think. Beginning in verse 1. So this is on the eve of the, of the Israelites' escape from slavery in Egypt. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if one Household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, and when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy it when I strike the land of Egypt." Okay, so the, on the eve of their escape, they're going to be driven out of Egypt because the Lord is going to execute judgment on Egypt and take the life of the firstborn of every household. Uh, a, a bitter, hard, devastating judgment where no household, no family was, was unaffected. But here's the thing. Even though Egypt was under the judgment of the Lord, Israel was going to be a part of it. They were under judgment as well. We have to remember that. It's not like Israel was this righteous, perfect, just people. No, God had purposed to demonstrate his sovereignty and mastery over the nations through the ten plagues that would simultaneously save his people, deliver them from slavery. But the Israelites were under God's wrath too. The blood on the doorposts was a sign to identify an Israelite home. But it was not an empty sign, was it? it I mean, he could have said, tack an olive branch to identify. Or put up a piece of paper that says, yo, 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 angel of death, not here, not here, right? Nothing like that. A lamb died so that that sign could be put on the door. A lamb had died to provide the sign, and if the Israelites were to, to escape, it would not be because God's justice had no claim on them. It would be because when God saw the blood on the doorframe, the blood of the sacrificial substitute, he would in grace pass over that house. Judgment fell on the Egyptians while God's people were spared, not because the Egyptians were inherently more sinful or worse. 
not because Israel was more righteous or better, far from it. The Israelites were spared only because a substitute had died in their place. Does that make sense? So at the very heart of the Passover meal was the death of a substitute. God had a legitimate claim upon both Israel and Egypt. The firstborn all belonged to him. In the place of the firstborn is the lamb whose blood is spread on the doorposts and who was feasted upon earlier that night. The lamb who was slain, as you saw, had to be perfect without defect. You can read about that in what we just read, Exodus 12, but also in Leviticus chapter 22. But by the substitutionary work of the lamb, the angel of death passed over. God revealed himself that night in Egypt as the God both of judgment and the God of mercy and grace. The result, well, the Israelites were delivered from slavery and they were constituted as a people, as a nation. They left, they entered Egypt, 12 families, they left Egypt as a people group on their way to a land that God had promised them where they would become a geopolitical entity, an actual nation. They were a people. They immediately traveled to Mount Sinai as God's redeemed people, and the Mosaic Covenant was established. But it's interesting, since now we're getting to... So I'm sure you've all at least watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner, or is that even still a thing? Maybe that's like back in my own day, um, where it was on every year near Easter. But you've read the passage, you know about that, you know about the Passover feast, and you know about the, the lamb sacrificed and the blood on the doorframe, that sort of thing. Um, but it's, there's something interesting that happens after the Israelites escape Egypt... They go through the Red Sea. That was pretty interesting, too. Um, but, but then they get up to Mount Sinai, and, and this is where the movie ends. But something really strange happens. I don't know if you've noticed this as you read about it. But in order to institute the Mosaic Covenant, God invites the elders of Israel up onto Mount Sinai. And what do they do? They eat. They eat. God becomes the host of a feast. And sinners, the Israelite sinners, they came to his table via the blood of atonement. And that's going to be a recurring theme throughout the Bible. This is recorded in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. And it's a strange passage. Listen to it afresh. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, which is weird. We don't do that anymore, thankfully. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I'm just going to pause there and just note that institution of a covenant, blood is shed. Blood is shed. Okay, back to the text. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And then it gets, it gets really cool. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. Now, I'm going to pause there. What would that have been like? Jaw-dropping awesome. Heart in your own hands, like leaping out of your chest. Terrifying awesomeness, right? But what do we get? Something unexpected. The chief men of the people of Israel, they beheld God. And what did they do? They ate and drank. The last thing that I would be able to do in that moment, it seems like, would be, well, pass the sandwiches, right? Here's the God of glory. But that's what God has prepared a feast for them. He has prepared a feast for them. It is significant that the covenant-making ceremony at Sinai concluded with a fellowship meal where Moses was joined by the priests and the elders. And I think, well, what's the big deal about eating? Now, I know you all think eating is a big deal. I think eating is a big deal. But what, what, this is weird. It's kind of strange. What's going on there? Think of it this way. In, in our day when heads of state like America and somebody, some other nation will, will sign a treaty together, 
and, and, and the cameras will be rolling and there'll be like 20 copies of the treaty with like 20 pins and they'll each sign it. And I don't know what they do, sell the pins on eBay or give them for gifts or something like that. That might be a, some way to get out of our national debt right there. Maybe that's a good idea. Um, but, and, and, and then what happens? They go off to a state dinner after they have signed the, the treaty, the covenant. Well, in the ancient Near East, the meal was the covenant signing ceremony. It wasn't done with pen and paper. You ate a meal. You sealed the deal through eating. The Israelites were supposed to celebrate the Passover feast annually from that day forward. Instructions were given there. What were they to do to remember? Well, again, in the death of the Passover lamb, God was laying down part of the most basic vocabulary by which we were to later understand the death of Jesus which would come 1,400 years later, 2,000 years ago, as we look back on it. To forget to celebrate the Passover festival, if you're Jewish, would lead to forgetting the Lord's deliverance of his people. So year after year after year, 1,400 years, the Israelites celebrated this feast. Year after year, they were reminded of how the Lord had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Year after year, they were reminded of how they were constituted as a nation, the people of God, kind of like our 4th of July barbecues in a truncated sense. The death of a substitute, though, was central to their thinking. They were redeemed by the death of a substitute. They were constituted as a people by the death of a substitute. And they rehearsed it year after year after year. The annual Passover feast pointed to a newer and better covenant, though, which would have, of course, a different feast to hold the people of, for, for, to help the people of God remember. You see, now, now why did it point ahead to something better? Because the Old Testament sacrificial meals continually pointed to the fact that sins were not yet ultimately paid for because sacrifices in them were repeated year after year after year after year. The author of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats, it cannot take away sin. It can't take away sin. Even in the midst of the relentless sacrificing and festivals, God promised through his prophets over that 14, next 1400 years, a lasting solution. He promised a newer and better covenant where he would take care of sin by taking care of sin at its source, our hearts. Moses promised one day, Israel, one day, a long time from now, but one day God will gather his people and circumcise their hearts so they would love him with all their heart and soul so they could live. The prophet Jeremiah, hundreds of years after Moses, but hundreds of years before Jesus, promised one day God would reconstitute his people by doing something radically new. He even called it, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. It will replace the old. God would write his law on our hearts. The Lord would be our God. We would be his people. And we don't have time to go there, but some of the prophets talked about when this happens, one day there's going to be a great feast in the last days, hosted by God in the midst of his people. So even as the Israelites celebrated the Passover after Passover, they were looking forward to a greater day to come. And the prophets, remembering the feasts of the covenant, looked forward to God's great feast in the later days. So that's the background for when Jesus shows up on that last Passover meal that he shared with his disciples. When he broke bread, passed the cup, he reinvests the old feast with new meaning. He wasn't acting ad hoc. What can I possibly do? Well, I'll, I'll make do with bread and wine. It was all for 1,400 years had been pointing to this very day. This new meaning was so unique and yet so contiguous, consistent with the old, that in Jesus' thinking, he believed the Passover was instituted to prepare the people of Israel for 
Israel's Messiah, to prepare Israel for him. So that was all background. So what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is looking back somberly with thankfulness. We look back somberly with thankfulness. The Lord's, the Lord's Supper, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It is a memorial. The elements, the bread and the wine, remind us of the death of Jesus. When we participate today in the Lord's Supper, we're symbolizing the Lord's death. It's like we're acting it out in some sense. The broken bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus. The cup symbolizes the blood shed by Jesus for remission of sins. And, and, and the shedding of blood in the Bible is always death. It's not, you know, like I, I, I shed blood today and nicked myself shaving. No, no. Uh, to shed blood, it's, it's death is what's being talked about there. In Old Testament imagery, the cup also is often associated with the outpouring of God's wrath. So when Jesus left the Last Supper and went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he, what does he pray? Lord, take this cup from me, if you will. And the Bible teaches over and over again, as I point out, it takes blood to seal the covenant. So when we come to the table, like we're going to do a little bit later today, we look back and we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. The prophet Isaiah provided some of the clearest teaching in the entire Bible of what we should be remembering when we come to the table. What did it cost God to inaugurate the new covenant and reconstitute his people under him? This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. And pay attention to the pronouns. I'll try to emphasize them here. But he, the Lord's servant, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's substitution. That's what took place. That's what we remember at the Lord's Supper. And an application thought here, if, if, if you're not yet a, a Christian, this, that's the gospel right there. It's understanding that Jesus Christ has done for you what you could never possibly do for yourself. Jesus has reconciled you to God by taking the punishment that you deserve. Jesus died for your sin. And he got up from the dead to reconcile you to God, to justify you, and to, to adopt you into his family. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. And if, so if, if you're not yet a believer, I would just say today is the day. Repent and believe the gospel. If you've heard this hundreds of times, or if you've heard, or you're hearing it for the very first time, today is the day of salvation. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'm supposed to go eat pizza. I would love to not go eat pizza and just hang out with you and talk about Jesus for a while. The Lord's Supper is not just looking back, though. The Lord's Supper is contemplating the present, our present, with seriousness. And what is our present? Our corporate identity and solidarity in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, he wrote this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So he's obviously talking about the Lord's Supper, communion, right? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. In this passage, Paul spoke of the incongruity, the, the inconsistency of idolatry with the Christian life. And to demonstrate that Christians ought not to be engaging in idolatry, the worship of demons, he reminded them of the practice of the Lord's Supper. You know, you guys do this every single week whenever you gather, right? You're practicing the Lord's Supper. What do you think you're actually doing there, he asks. Paul recognized because what Christ had accomplished on our behalf, there is a completely new set of relationships that exist that had never existed before. There's a vertical relationship between Christ and his disciples, and then a whole set of horizontal relationships we have with each other. 
For followers of Jesus, then, similar associations, similar like, a, like horizontal relationships with demons or the idols they represent, are relationships the same kind between followers of Jesus and idol worshipers? Those are impossible now because we are a new people. I mean, if you look at the language we just read, turning to the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we share the cup of blessing, representing the blood of Christ poured out for sins, inaugurating the new covenant, creating a covenant people. That's who we are as Christians. We are the people of God. We share in all the blessings and provisions of the new covenant. And those joined to Christ through his blood cannot participate with idols or demons, Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians. You would think, well, no, duh, right? Of course not. Paul reminds them that the bread that we break signifies our participation in the body of Christ. And then he reminds them of something very significant that cannot be missed. There's only one body. Just that there's one loaf at the table, we don't, we don't have that represented here, but at least theoretically, all those little crackers that we have here came from one loaf. You don't have to stretch your minds on that one a bit. But, but this, you don't have to stretch your mind. We are that one body. We are the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper then is a demonstration, a reminder of the solidarity of the new covenant people as one body in Christ, which is the church. So when we gather at the Lord's table, like we're going to do in about 15 minutes, We're affirming as true what the Spirit has already done through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the creation of a new people of God, us, the body of Christ, us, the church, us. We are that. This might sound weird, but but it's wonderful when you think about it. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating us corporately, corporately. So, I I love that we do the Lord's Supper every week here at GBC, and I also love the fact that we walk together to the table, Um, and we and we call it the table because it's like literally the table. You don't have to stretch your mind on that one, right? Here's what I love about it: I love watching everybody come. I love standing in the line with the Lord's people and looking looking in front of me and looking behind me and seeing all of the faces and recognizing you are my brothers and sisters in. Christ. Together, us, a new set of relationships that transcend ultimately all other relationships. We are a people saved by Christ, and we walk to the table together to remember that. So marvel at that. Even today as we're doing that, look around at all the faces and marvel at what the Lord has done and marvel that you get to be a part of it. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. This is our last text, maybe. We get more insight into what the Lord's Supper is all about in 1 Corinthians 11. And in this passage, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their practice of the Lord's Supper. They were doing it all wrong. It's illuminating because of their faulty practice, the meaning of the Lord's Supper becomes more clear as Paul corrects them. One chapter, after he's already alluded to the Lord's Supper, he gives some lengthy discussion of it. Look at verses 17 through 22. In the following instructions, because Paul has been going through a laundry list of stuff that he has to help them with. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, as an assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. And of course, that makes no sense. You're an assembled people, but there's divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think he's being sarcastic here. When you come together, Listen to this. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They're thinking, we have bread, we have wine, we say the magic words. He says, when you do that, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, 
I will not. In the early church, apparently, no buildings. We can relate to that a little bit. So they met in homes. It appears that the early Christian tradition was to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the context of a meal. In the Greco-Roman world, there was strong class distinctions between the haves and the have-nots, between those who lived upstairs and those who lived downstairs, right? The hosts of the gathering apparently were privileging the wealthy while the poor in the church were pushed out of the main room and neglected. And Paul's like, what is going on? The Lord's Supper is a celebration of our unity in Christ, and you're using it to divide people. May that never be. The Corinthians should have seen themselves as they actually were, a redeemed community united to Christ and to others by faith. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a celebration of our solidarity that all those who are in Christ share, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, regardless of fill in the blank. If you are in Christ, we are one together. Instead, what was going on in Corinth The Lord's Supper was being used as an instrument to divide people. It's like they got it totally backwards. They're all members of the same body, and yet the very thing that was meant to celebrate their unity in the gospel was being used to elevate some and then denigrate others. Notice what Paul says in verse 20. What they're doing, it's not actually the Lord's Supper. They might have thought it was. They might have had the right bread. might have had the right wine. They might have said the right prayers. But because all who were part of the church were not able to participate by plan, it was not the Lord's Supper. And so Paul corrected them. He reads verses 23 through 26 that we read every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. Paul has to say, this is what it is. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's how the supper was instituted. You've heard that week after week after week. Look at verse 27 to 28, though. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, therefore, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul is clear that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is something for which you prepare. You prepare for it. It's a celebration, but it has to be accompanied by some sober reflection. And note the corporate nature of the reflection. He says, don't eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. Well, what is it to drink it in an unworthy manner? I think oftentimes we think, well, there must be sin in my life. There must be sin in my life. And so I got to think through my week. What sin did I commit? I got to confess that. And now I can go forward. And now I'm doing it in a worthy manner. And that's partially true. But more to the point, look what he says in verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Body. What is the body? Who is the body? Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ, that is Jesus crucified, like you just go up and eat it and don't even think about Jesus and what he did for you. Yeah, I suppose that's partially true. But to eat or drink, I suspect, in an unworthy manner is to not discern the body of Christ, us, and the relationship that we have with each other. And so the Corinthians were actually dividing the body through something which was supposed to be a celebration of their unity. They weren't discerning the one body of Christ. They were creating factions and divisions in it. And Paul says, no, 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 what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's quite frankly the exact opposite. The exact opposite. To drink or eat in an unworthy manner is to take the Lord's Supper without understanding, appreciating, or believing that which the Lord's Supper signifies, our corporate solidarity as the church in Christ, bought by Jesus, maintained by him. If there was ever a passage that demonstrates there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, I think this would be it. 
So the Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal, it's a celebration through the gospel. We are the new covenant people of God. And just as baptism is the sign of our entrance into the covenant, the Lord's Supper is a sign of our continued participation in that new covenant. And as a new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper binds us to Jesus and to each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not a common meal, much less a private spiritual experience. We do it together. There are surely, make no, I, I don't want to uh, <laughs> make no mistake about this, there are surely personal implications for the Lord's Supper, but they flow out of the corporate reality. Because you are in Christ, here's some of the personal implications. The Lord's Supper can serve as an affirmation of Christ's love for you. We take the bread, we take it, Jesus died for me. The fact I'm invited to the table is a wonderful reminder that Jesus Christ loves me. Individually, personally, the Lord's Supper should give us assurance of that week after week. The Lord's Supper is an affirmation that all spiritual blessings are mine in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? We remember that every single time we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus not only loves me, Communion reminds me that he has abundant blessings for me. And when we take the Lord's Supper individually, it's an affirmation of our personal faith in Christ. Partaking of the elements is a wonderful reminder that I need the Lord. Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, which the elements symbolize, I'm utterly lost. But when I take the bread and the cup, I proclaim to the world that it was my sins that caused the suffering and death of the Lord of glory. But all of that, as wonderful as all that is personally, it flows from the corporate implications. The Lord's Supper is a declaration of our utter dependence upon Christ. We are always and totally dependent on the gospel. And so it's almost almost like, it's like spiritual nourishment, like elven whey bread (laughs) to, to nourish us along the way, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Tolkien was actually thinking that when he wrote it. He was Catholic. We'll forgive him of that, though, for this. Look at verses 30 through 34. That is why, Paul says, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And he says, I'm, I'm going to talk to you more when I get there. This tells us that this is a very important ordinance. They're not playthings. This is ordained by Jesus. They're signs of the covenant. And apparently people had died in Corinth because they had t- taken the Lord's Supper improperly, which is kind of chilling. So as we come to the table, there should be some reverent, Fear. Now, I've never seen anyone die uh, in, in the Lord's Supper, as nasty as those wafers and cups were during our COVID period. No one ever actually died from eating those things. Um, but, but I will say this. I will say this. I kind of joked at a serious time. Um, the Lord's on record as having punished people in Corinth for taking it in an improper way. I think we probably should just remember that. It's a chilling reminder that we are to take this ceremony seriously, as joyful as it is. Okay, some application for us. What does this mean for us? Well, the elements. What are the elements? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? This is my body. It has divided the church. Some people, some Christians of goodwill believe that the bread and the wine literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus. Others think that it's like infused with spiritual authority. Others think it's merely a, a memory device. Um, I think it's a very significant means of grace for us that is that th- these are signs, but they are not empty signs. Christ is present with us by faith. Are they merely symbolic? Well, they are symbols, but they're not empty symbols. They mean something, and they're not to be messed with. So can we alter the elements? I would say no. Bread and wine have a rich biblical theology. I ran you through some of it here with the Passover background. All of these things are invested when we take in, when we take the Lord's Supper. We're supposed to remember that. 
The church historically has held the line because it recognizes that. So my counsel is we're not going to be changing the elements here. Even if all we have are Mountain Dew and Twinkies, we are not going to offer that as Lord's Supper. Even though Mountain Dew is, after all, the nectar of the gods, it um, is not proper for the Lord's Supper. Um, why, why just little cups and tiny communion tablets? Well, sanitary reasons. Uh, did you know one thing that divided the church before one of the great flu epidemics was, um, was that a lot of churches were saying, we need individual cups, but the poorer churches could not get individual cups because you know, they didn't have disposable things. They couldn't buy them, and they thought, well, this is like class warfare. What, why are you asking us to do this? And then the flu epidemic came along, and everybody thought, I think we can pony up the money for individual cups <laughs> from now on. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that happened there. Uh, the imagery of a common cup, though, and a single loaf is probably much richer and closer to the mark. It just kind of violates our sensibilities at times, to, well, every time, to drink out of a common cup. But maybe some of you have experience with that. Uh, wine or juice, uh, fruit of the vine, just historically, the reason that there is even such a thing as grape juice is because teetotaling Baptists said, hey, can you make some non-alcoholic wine for us? Um, so the next time you're drinking grape juice at, at, uh, for breakfast, say, this is why we have it, because there were teetotaling Baptists out there who wanted grape juice. For most people around the world, grape juice is just like wine before it's time or something. I don't know. Um, we offer you an option. When do we celebrate? Where do we celebrate? What's well, a corporate celebration? And so we celebrate with the body of Christ, manifest in our local assembly here. We are Gresham Bible Church, the body of Christ. How often do we celebrate? Well, nothing is prescribed, but you know we do it every week. I like that. It always, though, must be accompanied by the preaching of the Word of God, the Gospel, because we do believe that the sacrament, if we want to call it that, or the ordinance only works because of what Christ accomplished objectively on our behalf. Apart from the actual faith and the promises of God, it's just the eating of stale bread, the sipping of some sour juice, and probably just an annoying add-on to an already long service where the preacher was going too long. Okay, But we don't want to do that. We're going to preach the word so you remember what it actually is. When we partake, what we partake of are symbols that never stand on their own. They were never intended to be isolated without explanation, the word of God. What about other events? Well, remember, this is a gathering of Christians eating the elements. I'm sorry, rephrase that. Just Christians gathering together and eating this doesn't make it the Lord's Supper. Doesn't make it the Lord's Supper. Remember how critical Paul was when the Lord's Supper was being taken. They weren't doing it as a celebration of the unity of the body because some were being excluded. In fact, he says, you're gathering together in your church and you're eating and drinking this stuff, but it's not actually the Lord's Supper because you're leaving some people out. The biblical manifestation of the new covenant community is the local church, and so we, we take the Lord's Supper together. And you might be thinking, yeah, but I did the Lord's Supper at my wedding, so I'm, I hope this is not too offensive to you, but um, no. <laughs> no. It, 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 it's, I, 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 I get why you would do, I, I get why people do that, and I probably would have done it, but my wife said, no, we're not going to. Um, I probably would have done it. Now I think I know. It, it's a celebration of the body of Christ corporately. So if we're going to do the Lord's Supper someplace, we need to invite the whole body to do it together, or it's not actually the Lord's Supper, as spiritual as it seems at that moment. Um, and you can be really angry at me if you, that's okay. Um, what about when I'm just hanging out with my friends? Like, hey, man, we're having a spiritual connection here. Let's do Lord's Supper together. No, 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 no. It's for the body of Christ manifest in the local church. The Lord's Supper should be celebrated when the body gathers together, or at least when we have the opportunity to gather together. It's a corporate celebration and should be celebrated corporately. Imagine like a, like a lone Jewish person out wherever saying, I'm going to celebrate the Passover now by myself. Who's to participate? Believers in Christ, Christians. The Lord's Supper, only, as I said, the Lord's Supper only works when it's combined by faith, it doesn't work by magic. There's no benefit for the unbeliever for participating in the Lord's Supper. And ordinarily, the way that believers are recognized in the church is, is through baptism. That's why we call baptism the front door. We talked about baptism last week. It's the ordinance that marks our entrance into the church. And so, like we said last week, we want to encourage every Christian, get baptized. Get baptized. 
The Lord's Supper is the ordinance that marks our ongoing participation in the church and fellowship with Christ in his body. Two ordinances, one to mark our entrance and one to maintain us along the way. You also need to be a believer living in, in, in covenant community. So you might hear us say, um, if you're walking with the Lord or if you're not under discipline. Because what, what is it to be disciplined by the church? It's to be excommunicated. Literally, you are removed from the communion table. You are forbidden access to it. So if you're under church discipline, we would say, no, don't, don't do that. What would preclude me from participating? Well, church discipline, certainly. Sin, re- repent, and then run to the cross. Run to the cross. Too often the celebration of the Lord's Supper turns into a time of obsessive ref- reflection on our sins. It's like a corporate guilt trip that we all go on together once a week at this time. We beat ourselves up before we stagger to the table. That's not what it is. The Lord's Supper is not a reward for measuring up. It's an opportunity for us to gather with God's people with grateful hearts, acknowledge that we could never actually measure up. But there was a man who could and did, and he died for me so I can come. Therefore, the Lord's Supper finally is anticipating the future with hope and joy. We read earlier in Matthew 22, Jesus said, I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So one thing we do in the Lord's Supper, here's another way to look at it. It's a rehearsal dinner where we are practicing week after week after week in anticipation of what? This is a foretaste of a greater meal, a meal that Jesus foretold. People, he said, will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. The Lord's Supper, then, is a testimony of our confidence and our hope in the return of Jesus. I suspect that right now, Jesus, at the right hand of God the Father, does know now the day and hour of his return. He hasn't celebrated with his people since that last supper with his disciples 1,400 years ago. 1,400, I'm sorry, 2,000 years ago, longer than that. But when Jesus returns and his kingdom is consummated, the party will begin. There will be laughter and tears of joy and a celebration that will go on and on and on. And what we're doing here is a dress rehearsal. Jesus cannot wait to celebrate with us. Do we feel the same? And if we do, well, then we should practice, which is what we're going to do now. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we have just heard like the longest introduction to the Lord's Supper service that probably this church has ever had. Um, I, we are grateful that you have given this to us, and we pray, Father, that, uh, that, that, that you would use the words of Paul and the words of Jesus to, and to heighten our anticipation for the return of Christ, to, uh, to, to help us to remember the death of Jesus, but, but now to, to delight in what you have done for us, by constituting us as Christ's people, co-heirs with Jesus, heirs of the kingdom of God. Bless us, we pray to that end in Jesus' name.